Welcome to Everything Went Black Podcast. Uh, tonight, I'd like to welcome Lena Dawes, rock scribe and author. Uh, but before we get into this, I want to just get rid of the uh, plug aspect of the show first. Do you train jiu-jitsu? Do you train Muay Thai? Do you train CrossFit? If you answer yes to any of those questions, please check out Datsusara Bags. You can go to their site through the portal on the everythingwentblackmedia.com site. Check it out if you want to want to get a hemp um, gi bag, a hemp fanny pack, training shorts, or some sort of uh, battle pack, which is what I own, which you can fit any kind of equipment that you want in that thing. It's durable. It's my antimicrobial. They're all black, if you're into the color black like I am. And uh, so, yeah, check it out. And um, we had uh, Chris O'Dell, actually the guy who runs that company, the founder of that company on the podcast a few months ago. And a uh, really cool guy, so it'd be good to support him. Also, if you're interested in uh, health and fitness and nutrition, uh, you can go to the onit.com uh, portal from the uh, everythingwithblackmedia.com website, and you can buy uh, you know organic cashew butter, um, MCT oil, coconut butter, Tonka bars, you know, as well as like uh, you know strength and conditioning equipment, things like that. So, without further ado, we have uh, Lena Dawes. Hello. Hello. And um, so you're, you're Canadian, right? I'm Canadian. Hmm. Are you a Rush fan? Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, as a, I mean, you know, our generation. If you aren't a Rush fan, there's something wrong with you. So, yeah, from my earliest memories. There's, like, uh, a lot of Canadian bands uh, that come to mind, actually, aside from, you know, more... They're actually not even contemporary anymore, but bands like The Swarm and whatnot, you know, hardcore bands. But growing up, because I think you and I kind of grew up in, like, the 70s and the mm -hmm. early 80s and whatnot, so, you know, we got Triumph, we got yeah. April Wine. Yeah! <laughs> and, uh, we got Rush, of course. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there's, like, some, you know, some other bands we're leaving out. Well, Voivod... Oh, oh. <laughs> wow, that was a really big, you know, faux pas on my end. Yeah, well, I mean, because they're from Quebec, us Ontarios, you know, Ontarians tend to completely forget them. You know, in my travels through Canada, I noticed that there is definitely a, uh, you know, sort of, you feel like you're in a different place when you're in Quebec versus other parts of Canada. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Now, is it sort of like a north-south thing, or is it like, uh, you know, what, what's the vibe being a Canadian, you know, um, in the Quebec? There's, I think it's culture and language and heritage is way more important in Quebec um, than in Ontario. In Ontario, you're just kind of free-floating <laughs> with no identity. But in Quebec, the language is extremely important. Um the culture, the food, you know, Montreal, as you probably know, is an incredible city, just beautiful city. The people are a little weird there. Um, my sister, my little sister has lived there for 16 years and, um, you know, she's fluent in French, but if she wasn't, she wouldn't be able to get a job. Yeah, even though I noticed that uh, when you're in, you know, a city like Montreal, people can jump between English and French at the drop of a hat, but they definitely prefer to speak French. Oh, yeah. I mean, I went to I, w I went to cover a metal festival there in, like, 2008, and I went into a Starbucks, and they said, you know, bonjour, comment ça va? And I said, ça va bien? <laughs> and as soon as I started, like, you know, 
bastardizing the language, they just kind of glared at you and then they start speaking to you in English. Um, it's almost, I mean, I, I mean, as a kid, I remember, because my dad's side of the family, both my parents grew up in Quebec. And I remember as a kid going to a store, and my brother and I had gotten lost. And we asked the store owner, like, how do you get to this area? And as soon as we started speaking English, he ignored us. He just turned his back on us. And we were like, okay. <laughs> so it's... Yeah, it's, it's tense there. It's very tense. Have you ever been to France, actually? No, no. They take it to another level with tension in France, believe me. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. I just hear the dog poo, just, I don't know, man. <laughs> I just dog heard poo? It, I heard it's like a really, you know, beautiful city, but filthy. Dog poo, like the Greenpoint dog poo? <laughs> because I, we um, were walking around the neighborhood on Sunday, and... Uh, I feel like the entire neighborhood is just covered in dog shit, man. And it just, it it, it blew my mind, actually, how it's like a, a, a minefield, like walking on the sidewalk. I think people, they see the snow and they think, oh, I'll just let my dog go and it will just, you know, miraculously disappear in the snow. <laughs> Not realizing that it will, you know, become apparent when the snow thaws. So one of the reasons why I asked you on the show was uh, about a year ago, you had a book called uh, What Are You Doing Here? come out and um you know you're a black woman and you're in the metal scene and uh you embrace that sort of uh you know lifestyle so that book deals with a lot of those topics mm -hmm. so uh also you know being a canadian black canadian woman into metal you know that seems like you're kind of there's a lot of the sort of a rich story to tell with, with that whole, all of those factors sort of coalescing together, you know? Yeah. So what, um, well, first of all, what was it like growing up in Canada? And, uh, you know, what was, what was your, you know, I, I read, I read the book. Yeah. I think generational wise, it made a huge impact in terms of, you know, this was before cable. Mm -hmm. And when you listen to the radio back then, it was top 40, but it was really diverse where you could hear ACDC and then Michael Jackson and then Cool and the Gang and then Led Zeppelin. Um, so I grew up in an environment where we had access to a myriad of different genres of music. So me being into ACDC and then I grew up in the country. Um, it was a very rural area where, you know, um, my parents still don't have cable. It's just too far out. Um, so you had nothing to do. And um, so you listened, music was a big thing. And so if the neighbors were listening to Deep Purple, it was just like, oh, that's really cool. What is it? So there was an innocence to it in terms of just being drawn to different styles of music. And I think that really helped in terms of, you know, just gravitating towards kind of heavier stuff, you know, when I got a little bit older. In your book, you go into, um, you describe, you know, sort of, you know, kind of being like the odd man out, uh, sort of living in like a white society, like in a white uh, town. And, um, you know, w w did you deal with like any kind of alienation at that point? Are you pretty oh. well assimilated or? Oh, no, I never assimilated. I mean, in some ways I was really f fortunate because um, when I was in high school, I, because I was such a nerd, metal nerd, and wanted to know exactly what guitar K.K. Downing was playing in Judas Priest. <laughs> I was able to, I always had like, a, you know, that the we called them greasers back then, but the Heshers, you know. And so I always had a group of male 
friends in high school that I could talk music about, but I never fit in and I was never made to fit in. And I think that stayed with me my entire life, but it's also made me an extremely strong person. Um, just knowing at a very early age that you have to, you know, you are on your own in a way um, and you have to stay true to yourself and you can't, no one, and who wants to be, you know, like everyone else? I always kind of struck, I always resisted that anyway. But as a, as a teenage girl, um, you know, when salt and pepper came out and I want to be, you know, hip hop fly girl with, you know, half my head shaved or whatever, you know, there was that pressure to want to conform, but I just, I just never could conform and everybody knew I couldn't conform. Most of the people are listening to this, you know, like the seven or eight people out there that are actually, <laughs> that are actually listening, you know, probably have their own stories about how they got into metal and like, you know, what, what, you know, what was the defining moment where, you know, what, what resonated with them, with the music and what attracted them to it. So, you know, like what, what's your story with that sort of thing? You know, I think it's the same as everybody else in terms of, I love the energy and I felt that, you know, um, I always said Kiss was the band that I was like, oh my God, what is this? You know, because of the makeup and the power and, and there was that, um, made for TV movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Or yeah. Phantom in the Park, Phantom, whatever. Something like that. Yeah. And I was fascinated because they were wearing those platform heels. They looked so big and powerful. And I wanted to, I wanted that power. I felt so disempowered that I saw them and the crazy makeup and everything. And I wanted some of that. I wanted that energy. So that led me on to, um, you know, there was a show on T, there was a show on TV that used to come on at like midnight, um, called, uh, The New Music. It was a Canadian music show. And it was revolutionary for its time because they used to play like Agnostic Front. They used to do live videos with, live oh, wow. interviews with Agnostic Front, Henry Rollins, Black Flag, like all these punk and metal dudes. And I was just, I just fell in love. I, I wanted to be that scary. Because I felt like if I was like, you know, um, Roger Murray from Agnostic Front, who I love, I wanted to be him. I wanted to be that menacing. And he had that tattoo on his back that when he was in prison. <laughs> and I was like, shit, man. Like, I, wanna, I want that. I, I wanted that. I wanted to be that strong and, and in some ways masculine. Um, from an emotional or intellectual level. So that's what got me. But I think that this is what I think drives me crazy about people is that as human beings, we all have the same wants and desires and needs and are gravitated towards really the same stuff. So like my teenage white male friends, I, I just, I was, you know, I love the energy and I love the aggression of the music and the scene. Yeah, I think like in general, most people that, into extreme music, um, you know, punk, hardcore, metal, you know, sort of maybe in the beginning have a feeling of, uh, you know, powerlessness maybe is what, you know, uncomfortableness, like not fitting in, like, you know, maybe you're, you're too skinny, maybe you're too fat, maybe you have glasses, maybe you're too short, maybe you're too tall, you know, maybe you don't have like the social skills to integrate yourself with other people around you. Mm -hmm. So intense music like that sort of offers like an escape valve, like an escape hatch, you know, and you can, by sort of assimilating the, um, you know, tra trappings of that style, 
you identify with like the sort of power figure of the whole thing. Yeah. You know. So um so moving forward, what uh did you go to school in this, up in Canada or you did you come down here for college or did you study journalism? Like what was uh, your background in education? Oh. <laughs> My background is uh well, I started I mean, I as I talk about in the book, um I went to I actually went I'm a chef. I went to cooking school after high school. Um, primarily, I mean, I love cooking, um, and my passion, but a lot of it was because I was told and thought that that's all I could do. I, I did, wasn't very bright, you know, wasn't really going to amount to much. So I did that and was always really interested in social justice, anti-racist work based on my background. <laughs> so, um, after doing that in Toronto for a couple of years, I decided you know, I want to go back to school. Um, so I ended up doing my undergrad in uh, Toronto at York University, and I did a double major in political science and sociology with a focus on um, philosophy and American political theory. So um, then, so I never took journalism. Um, I always wrote. Um, I was writing about music in high school, and I just loved to do it. And I didn't really take it seriously until I was in university and started um, writing for the school newspaper and always writing about rock oh, and okay. black representation in rock and always asking this question, why aren't? Why am I the only person? Because I grew up in the grunge era. Mm -hmm. So I was, me and my homegirl, my best friend, we were the only black people to see like Monster Magnet or White Zombie mm -hmm. or you know, whatever. And I always had this burning question because of that desire for belonging that I just could never really fill. One of, one of the biggest ironies, which I think escapes a lot of people, is the fact that rock music is based on the blues, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, black music, essentially, <laughs> you know, R&B. And, and that's like the thing, like, that I could never understand that sort of uh, hang up that some, you know, like rock fans, like white rockers, you know, like thinking of like, you know, this is like white music and like hip hop is black music. And, you know, the irony is that, you know, the original rock and rollers were guys who are basically, you know, in some cases, literally stealing music from black artists, mm -hmm. you know, so the whole thing really is this, this kind of weird, you know, sort of Ouroboros of like this serpent like eating its tail and you know I, I always found that you touch on that in the book a little bit yeah I mean because that really is I mean you know on Facebook you know um there's a couple of groups I'm you know of, of young black kids who are into like alternative music and they always say you know rock music is black music and and you know and I said I and when I wrote the book I didn't really want to spend too much time on it um because to me, it's common sense in terms of the history. If you listen to Black Sabbath, for the love of God, if you listen to Deep Purple, or even, you know, Blue Cheer to a point, you're going to hear. Um, but it's, I think that there is this resistance. I think that when hip hop in the early 90s, mid 90s blew up, and a lot of poor black and Latino folks were making a hell of a lot of money, and the mainstream started paying attention, there was almost this resentment and this separation where all of a sudden you had to choose camps. Um, so, and, and hip hop at that time too was filled with lyrics of, um, empowerment yeah. and talking about community. Oh, it's, you know what? I, I'm a, 
I love cats. Yeah, she gets a little, a little <laughs> like with, with new people, you know? Yeah, she's precious. You gotta check check it out, check the scene out. Oh, he's a precious cat. Except that hurts. Yeah. Let's <laughs> put my hand over here. But yeah, so I think that, um, and then listening to black centric music, black, you know, music from black communities, um, all of a sudden it became fashionable to listen to the music and the culture that represented your culture. Back in the day, um, you know, people, black people were listening to Chuck Berry. Um, way back in the day, um, they actually even accepted Little Richard, you know, um, but there was this, you know, in t historically, when a lot of Southern b blacks moved to the North and respect po respectability politics clicked in in terms of saying we're now living among white folks. We have to present ourselves a certain way and act a certain way because we need to keep jobs. We need to get an education. There was more pressure put on so socially in terms of moving around communities that people kind of almost abandoned black rock musicians because it was always the devil's music. Rock music was always perceived, it didn't matter until Elvis, Elvis Presley, it was always perceived as a class issue in terms of you want to get down with Satan, you're going to listen to this. So black people really told their children, the younger generation, who were interested in Elvis and whatever else was coming out, don't listen to that music. Listen to, you know, the Motown, the Detroit, what was coming out, soul music, funk uh, funk music is really black rock music. Um, gospel had some funk and rock. So, I mean, it was the mute, the rock was always there, but it was watered down because of respectability politics within the black community. I recently, I, I don't watch a whole lot of television, but occasionally, like if I visit my parents or something, the TV's on, and there was um, some soft drink commercial. I believe it was uh, maybe Coca-Cola or Pepsi, where it was a story of a young man who, uh, you know, was trying to become a, a rapper, you know, and... Uh, you know, they show him, like, making his demo, and then finally he's in front of all these people. Ironically, it's a white guy. Apparently he's, like, some kind of, uh, you know, I don't know who he is, because, like, I, personally, I, I like old old hip-hop and rap music from mm -hmm. the 80s, and up, up until, I think, I think the most, well, that's not true, actually. Like, the big stuff that I like, you know, like Wu-Tang and, like, you know, Cool Keith and that stuff is, like, the most recent sort of major stuff that I've listened to, even though there's stuff like you know, like MF Doom or like Immortal Technique or things like that that are mm -hmm. interesting, but are a little bit more underground, I guess. Yeah. But uh, but it's it's funny how I find it interesting that you know, for the white person to embrace the black culture is like totally fine. You know, we can be, you know white guys can be rappers, white guys can rip off blues musicians and create you know rock music. Led Zeppelin can like straight up cover you know blues classics. And no one will know that it was not their song that they wrote. Yeah. And uh, But there is definitely that stigma of, like, you know, there's, like, this sort of cultural stigma of, like, the, the going the, the opposite way. Yeah, I mean, even just, like, a month ago or in January, um, a Canadian television um, network did a segment on um, my book, me and my book. And it was, I was obviously fe featured, and uh, my friend Militia Vox 
who's a singer of Judas Priestess, was prominently featured. And so they posted it on their website, and some guy writes in and he goes, you know, uh, metal is Viking music. It's for white men. It's for the white man. You you people have your own music. Wow. <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, this, this, that shit don't ever get tired from people, do it? You know, like you, there's always this... And I think that in terms of the book, and what bothered me the most was talking to so many black female rock musicians or metal, hardcore, and punk musicians who are really good. Um, And the frustration of not being able to get, and like, you know, not being able to be taken seriously, despite the fact that they were extremely talented, um, just always being seen as a joke. And in terms of making a living, you know, there's booking shows, getting shows or, you know, getting a label attention or a showcase at South by Southwest. Um, it's extremely frustrating knowing that you can be extremely talented and passionate about, especially this this type of heavy music. But you, there's always this extra jump hurdle that you have to jump that even black guys in the metal scene don't have to jump over. Well, yeah, being a woman also puts you at even more of a sort of disadvantage, I think, sometimes, you know, in, in extreme music. Yeah, generally, but I think that also the stereotypes that specifically focus on black women are is the worst. Like, white women can get away with, and I, I really want to make that clear, um, that white women can get away with certain things in the metal scene as musicians and as fans that black women w- won't. Um, I've been at shows where a black hard rock performer has been playing and men like will just grab them, try and grab their breasts in the audience. One, I saw one where the guy tried to put money down the woman's top. What was it? Where was this? I was, was uh, well, it was in Buffalo, New York. <laughs> home, 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 of course, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was, but I was, I was like, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked, not entirely surprised, but you know, it's this weird thing where, um, you know, the hypersexualization and the stere- and the stereotypes, the historical his- uh, stereotypes that that comes from, where you are seen. You're just not seen with the same level of respect and credibility. Um, and I think that in this day and age, it's unacceptable. It's absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, I mean, things have definitely changed. I mean, that story that you were telling, was that was that like in the 80s or ni- early 90s? or? No, this just happened in uh, December. Really? Oh, man. Damn. And I, I talked to the woman after, and I was like, what the fuck? And yeah. she goes, that happens all the time. And she's a professional. She can handle it. But if it was me, I would have <laughs> yeah. lost my mind. But, you know, but this is the thing that also people have to deal with is not not a willingness to concede, but a willingness to accept that those people and those stereotypes and those images are out there and manipulating it for their gain. I personally think that people waste too much energy trying to do that, <laughs> but it's it's a reality. You are not. I mean, it's just it's really it's really really frustrating. So, what was the uh, sort of motivation for actually putting all this stuff together in a book? I mean, you know, there's a. I mean, you know, you've been doing a lot of a lot of writing on a professional level. Uh, so, you know, at what, at what point did you decide you wanted to write a book and like sort of what was the environment that you you had around you at that point? 
I think just like there was a couple of things having an emotional reaction to seeing, and this was like 1996, 1997, um, Skin from Skunk and Nancy. Um, Tour with the Rollins band, right? Yeah, and and there was a, the first video, the American video, was selling Jesus, and mm-hmm. her, her image, this you know beautiful, strong, bald-headed black woman who was in power and control, doing the. T- I mean, I like heavier music than that, but still doing this you know, punkish alternative rock that was very rare back then. Mm-hmm. And I was just mesmerized. I think seeing images of, of, of women and wondering why they aren't in my life, like why I don't see them at shows, you know, and wanting to find other people that were like me who are just, you know, really interested in the music. And just it's just kind of like this long-running kind of question. And also I think just acknowledging the benefits in terms of how um, anyone that knows me well knows that I'm a huge Henry Rollins, totally obsessed Henry Rollins fan, and really credit his early books um, and the, you know, the early Rollins band stuff for saving my life, you know. And so I, I, I understood the benefit of listening and channeling and some ways angry music and how it made me kind of stop feeling sorry for myself sometimes. So my, I guess my whole thing was trying to find other women who felt the same way. He utilized the music the same way and the positives about the scene, not just talking about the negatives, but really encouraging more diversity in the scene. Yeah, I'm a big Rollins fan as well. Yeah, yeah. huge. So how long, what was the, uh, the sort of time frame? Between you know your the germ of this idea forming inside your head to having an actual you know manifested physical copy, I'd say about four years, and and there was a bit there was big chunks in between those four years. Um, I spent the first six months doing research and trying to find people <laughs> to interview <laughs> because even back then you know there wasn't the internet was not as robust in terms of diversity as it is now. But luckily, you know, um, my publisher, Ian Christ, he was with me from the beginning to the end. So he really helped me, um, you know, he knew more people at that time than I did. So he'd be like, yeah, my friend has a black girlfriend. She's really into metal. Do you want to interview her? <laughs> you know? And like, or I, or I knew people, you know, the, the white male journalists I knew in the States would say, I just saw a black girl walking down the street wearing a Misfits t-shirt. Do you want me to stop her? <laughs> so after about... You know, and so I was always, you know, I think the the longest thing was really getting those interviews. And even to the very end of the book, like right when, you know, Ian was like, okay, final manuscript time, let's do it. We were still kind of, I was still finding women and still wanting to inject their stories into the book. But yeah, it was, a, I mean, ordinarily, and I, I'm glad it took that long. I'm glad that there was chunks and going back and forth with Ian and because it just made it, and there were some chapters that were extremely hard to write about, and so it needed time to marinate. And I needed to do, like, the race and racism one um, was was really hard to write because I, I really didn't want to get my ass kicked after the book got published. <laughs> so, and, and you know the metal people. It's like if you make one mistake factually, right. you're screwed. People are going to call you on it, and they yeah. will tear you apart. So I wanted to make sure that... I knew that, and people laughed at me too. I mean, you know, the the amount of laughter I got when I was traveling to the States and saying, hey, I'm working on this book, can I ask you a question? Um, 
the looks of shock, surprise, and and straight up laughter. People thought it was a joke. So knowing that, taking the time to actually formulate and make sure that everything you write is as accurate as it can be, um, that's what took it so long. Speaking of racism, are you a fan of black metal? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, <laughs> I had a problem last on Friday. This past Friday? Well, yeah. I mean, I wrote an article about um, kind of diversifying the metal scene on yeah. for Flavor Wire, and uh, didn't go so well. <laughs> well like, what was some of the problems you had? Well, it had to do. There was, um, you know, I was just talking to Dave Castillo from St. Oh, Vitus yeah. and about yeah. booking and how yeah. does this, and just talking about kind of what is happening in the scene that can really potentially alienate fans from participating. And I'm a huge underground, you know, metal fan. Um, most of, the, I mean, none of the bands I listen to are on mainstream record labels. I, I feel very passionately about supporting uh, musicians. Um, so it was, it was based on that. But you mentioned um, it's, it's a hard topic to write about. And black metal. Getting back to your question, I, I, I there's, I like blackened metal. Okay. I like a lot of bands that inject some of the the texture um, and sounds and atmospheric stuff that you would find in. But I'm very pit particular about what I listen to, and I'm not going to say I'm going to spend an hour researching a band before I listen. But I, I I I don't feel like we can even just completely dismiss the whole genre when there's you know a few rotten eggs in it. But again, I I would be a little particular because I, I refuse to support anybody who holds any type of, you know, anti-Semitic or homophobic or racist beliefs. I just won't do it. And, and, and especially in, like, the European scene, there's, like, you, you only have, you don't have to go that deep to really, you know, with most of those bands, you don't have to go that deep to find some reference or some sort of weird affiliation or, you know, comment made at some point in their career, you know? Yeah, you don't. And I think the worst part about this scene and... um is that the arguments you have with people, because the majority of my friends um, who listen to black metal will say, oh, but I like that band, they're really cool, and they, they, they know what they stand for. They don't have to have lyrical content that leads exactly to their political beliefs, but they, they know. But they, 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 it's the, there's this huge argument that will never die in terms of do you support the artist or are you supporting just their music? Can you separate the two? And it's an answer that I don't think everybody has their own take on it. Um, I feel very strongly with mine, and it's gotten me into quite a bit of trouble because... And you start looking at your friends differently, too. Yeah. Especially the whole Burzum. Like, Burzum is a, is a huge, really great example because you will get... I know, you know, people that I like will say, oh, you know, he's just, his music is atmospheric and I love it and whatever. And I'm like, that's cool, but I'm, I'm not, it's, I, I, no, no. And I think, too, it's not just, you. yeah, I mean, it, it's a really, you know, challenging issue. I, all I can say is, for me, I feel very strongly about not listening or supporting that music. Yeah, I mean, I think it's unanimously agreed that Varg himself as a human is, is a moron, you know. But, well, actually, that's not even true, really. I mean, I think there's probably a variety of opinions about him and his views and whatnot, you know. 
Um, I mean, I have, I have Burzum records, and to me, Burzum is an interesting band within the black metal sort of sound. You know, however, you know, his ideology is not something that, you know, I you know, subscribe to that sort of ideology. Now, it's a, a sort of related topic I had in a previous podcast was uh, when Death in June came to, uh, mm. to Brooklyn, <laughs> right? And um, I'd actually seen Death in June back in 1997, and I didn't really know anything about them. It's like my, my roommate was a fan, and he was one of these complicated guys, you know? Like this, you know, far out kind of dude. You know, he had like we we're young guy, young kids. You know, we didn't really fully understand a lot of stuff. I mean, I knew that I didn't want anything to do with white power. I knew that for for absolutely for certain. But uh, you know, he was like, I know, he like Big Black and Joy Division, and you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, he likes that kind of stuff too. So we went to this show, and. It was like one of the creepiest experiences, and I, and I didn't know anything about Death in June. I was just like, you know, it's a cool name, sounds real heavy, you know, whatever it is. And uh, the music itself, I sort of found out a little bit about what they were, what their deal was. And uh, you know, there were people like seek hailing at the show, and, and it was like definitely a strong, you know, sort of like fascist like vibe at the show. Now, recently they played. But it was like this, almost like this, like hipster event. It wasn't necessarily. I don't think anyone knew or cared or thought that it was some new ironic statement or something like that. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but then when you actually, and now it, and there's an even a deeper level to it. You know, being that Douglas Pierce is homosexual. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, is it a fetish? Is it something that he really has strong feelings about, or is he someone who just wallows in this like? depressing, bleak, you know, darkness of, like, this sort of World War II, like, miasma of hopelessness, you know? It's like... And if you read interviews with the guy, there's no definitive answer, yes or no, mm-hmm. you know? Except that, I guess, your reaction as a as a, a person is, like, it makes me uncomfortable, Death in June. Right. You know, I have Death in June records. I've seen them perform twice. Yet I feel uncomfortable by it. I felt even more uncomfortable the second time because there were people who were maybe not, that were like regular people there, you know, people that were like, you know, what I consider casual music fans were at the show. And it dawned on me, I was like, I wonder if any of these people have any clue as to what the controversy is around the band. Yeah. You know? I think that I remember, I remember when they played in Brooklyn last summer and they actually they were supposed to play in Toronto right after and they shut the show down yes you know and um and that's how I actually heard about it because there was a petition of this organization that was kind of following the band yeah, and yep. trying to mm-hmm. shut them down I, I I really don't know I mean I tend to be very cynical in these t- things in terms of I think that there was a there was a couple of people um Young journalists in New York, hipster young people that I won't name, who on Twitter were like, oh my God, I can't wait to see Death in June. That's going to be so cool. And it's so edgy and like, come on, oh my God. And they like, they, they like the fact that he is provocative. I don't think that they were, 
they're not evil people, but there was a sense from a few people I, I know here that they just, they thought it was sexy. He's so edgy and, and I don't think they were thinking very critically about, it's, it is not even, cause, you know, it's not even about the, the dude. It's even, it's more about in some ways who he draws. If you go to a show and there's people see Kyling, yeah. regardless of what he says or doesn't say, there's something about his presence, maybe past or um, present, where it's drawing those people to a show. And that's just as important than just having his band play. It's also, the you know, who you draw to your venue and the reputation you want your venue to have. Um, I know that Phil, Phil from down, um, I was very fortunate enough to talk to him and, and cause he's mentioned in the book yeah. and I was able to meet him in Austin last fall. And he, regardless of, you know, the bullshit he said, you know, almost 20 years ago, he still has skin showing up at a show. Um, I saw them play in Detroit. It was all like skinheads. Really? I thought I was going to die. Like seriously, Confederate flags waving in the wow. air. I'm like, this is crazy. So it's also about, in terms of the band, it's who gravitates to them and why. I personally think that if you believe in anything or you romanticize about anything that could potentially cause people harm, physical harm or death, it is a serious problem. So you said something earlier that actually is very interesting, is, is the, you know, who you draw to your shows. And it's like, you know, I've been working with these ideas recently with, you know, negativity and like sort of trying to live a little bit more of a positive, like sort of lifestyle. And, you know, you know, you, you look at various people's Twitter feeds and Facebook posts and whatever, and there's like this meditation on the negative, like all of the things that, you know, some guy like at the, uh, you know, check cashing place, like bum me out and I'm going to let that affect my whole world. <laughs> but like... If you just look like 15 degrees, like in a different direction, you see something else that sort of counteracts that thing. And the choice is really yours as to what you want to spend your energy and your resources observing, you know? So, I mean, that's a real general thing. And like, I've been trying to apply that sort of logic to my life. But the other end of that is like these, these artists, artists who are sort of dabbling with this like darkness that maybe it's ironic at first, you know, maybe like, okay, you know, Boyd Rice, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, like I'm going to, you know, put on this like Nazi uniform. Oh, it's, it's funny. It's all ironic. But then like 10 years later, you know, you're, you're that guy though. You know what I mean? Right. It's like when kids started first <clears throat> wearing mustaches, you know, it's like, oh, it's going to be funny. It's like the sort of 1970s, like cop thing on wear a mustache, you know, but you know, 10 years later, you're wearing a mustache, you know what I mean? And you're like, you're like, yeah, this looks good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm into this. And I think that's how a lot of this stuff happens with people. Cause I, I have known people in my life who have sort of adopted ideologies like that, but it, it started from a place of maybe, you know, a, a place of like insecurity and weakness. Mm -hmm. And then one you put one foot in front of the other and you're not looking at the thing that's just out of your 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 sort of viewport you're not looking like two feet away 
when maybe that would have changed your, your world around, but you're looking in down this, like this dark rabbit hole and then you just end up going under, you know? And I think that like, that's a lot of like what goes on, but nonetheless, like you still have this negative response with people and you're still attracting all this negative, dark energy to yourself, you know? So I think it's like a real slippery slope with all of this, like, you know. Well, I just don't understand why anyone would find, you know, wearing an SS uniform ironic. Especially, I think, representative, that that uniform represents millions and millions of people who were killed. Um, In the not-so-recent past. Right. And, and hate and violence. and But I do know people who will be like... Oh, well, or they'll dismiss Boyd Rice by saying, oh, you know, he's a lost soul, but, you know, but. And I'm like, that's just not cool. I think that we need to put a kind of a, a stand to what we accept and what we don't accept. And I think that one of the issues in terms of talking about race and racism as a black woman mm -hmm. is that people really don't seem to believe you because it hasn't happened to them. And they're not kind of realizing that they're in a place in society where most likely they're never going to experience racism. If you're straight, yeah. you're not going to experience homophobia. Nope. If you're a cis uh, person, you're not going to experience transphobia. Um, and we're not willing to get ourselves, we're not willing to be objective and think about what other people are going through based on th things that they cannot and do not want to change. So I, 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 it's, I don't know, I, I just find it very disheartening um, the, these dismissals, but I guess that's my bottom line is like, I would never ever support anyone who is publicly representing images or language that has led to people being killed, uh, murdered, beaten up. And sorry, I feel like I'm going on a tangent here, but one of the most disturbing things about working on my book was talking to young black girls who were really into the scene some were skins, black skins, some were metal, punk, hardcore girls. And the stories they told of being chased by skinheads, of being beaten up, um, there's stories that I couldn't even put in the book because I just didn't feel comfortable about it. They're going through this just for being in a public space where they have every right to be in and have grown up on the same music and had the same influences as the person standing beside them yet they have been attacked for this. So for me, there's absolutely no justification when um, I, I hear these easy dismissals of, you know, people doing stupid shit, especially young musicians. Well, Boyd Rice, I don't know how, I think he's probably, is he our age? No, or? he's like, he's got to be like in his mid to late 50s, yeah. probably, I imagine. But I mean, I've heard stories about younger bands yeah. um, who have done, like worn t-shirts at shows that like white ring, white ring, wing, you know, Nazi band t-shirts and they'll wear them at a show and things like that. That's just stupid. Um, you know, we can do better than that. So, but I do agree with you. It's hard to focus. I don't want to focus on the negativity. It bums me out, you know, and life is too short. I'm in grad school, you know, <laughs> I'm broke. I got other things to worry about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's important to acknowledge the negative side of things, but I guess the point I'm trying to make, I'm not, I'm, I'm saying this is more like a personal philosophy to maybe if someone's feeling like unempowered or weak or they feel, you know, like the world is against them that I felt that way many times in my life. And I've oftentimes wallowed in that darkness, you know, and 
you know, it's a heavy thing when you feel that way. But the reality is that just like most things in your life, you're actually choosing to see things that way. And like, if you sort of look 15 degrees to your right or your left, you'll see something else that counter counterbalances that negativity. And I think that that's something in the metal scene in particular, that there is this like celebration of like darkness, you know, and uh, that without the sort of other side of those things. And I think that that itself sort of propels people forward and a lot of the sort of these negative ideas permeate with some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you a fan of Lord Mantis? Uh, I've seen him a few times. I, I wouldn't say I'm a fan, but I'm familiar with their music. I mean, they're, they're, they're good. Yeah, I just, um, I'm listening to their new one, Death Mask. It just is going to come out in a couple of months. And I, that's a really, to me, that's an interesting example because it's so dark. Yeah. It's so perverted mm-hmm. and dirty. And you're like, for Charlie Fell, it's like, I just, I just interviewed him. Um, I just got back the questions today and he's just, you know, a very interesting man, the way how his mind, I don't want to be in his mind, but there's something about that band that is so negative mm-hmm. and so dark. I find it liberating in a way. I think that it, it makes you feel real that you, in some ways, do we all, I mean, I'm not saying I like to wallow in negativity, but there's a level of depravity that I find in their music that in some ways I wonder if we all feel and this particular band allows us to express that, whether it's just listening to it. I'm not saying that people should listen to it and go slash somebody's neck or whatever, but it's it's. I always have a really interesting reaction when I listen to this particular band. Um, and I always say, like... Um, I just sent an email to Chris from Profound Lore, mm-hmm. yep. and I was like, dude, this is fucking awesome. Like, I love this band. Yeah. <laughs> and, I thought, and after I sent the email, I was like, maybe I shouldn't have written, because it's, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the, that weird base human depravity that it, it, they, they put on, they record it. And I really do think that everybody has a little bit of that in them. It's just, you know, whether we can suppress it, whether we choose to suppress it. But listening to, especially Death, Death Mask, when it comes out, it's going to be interesting what people say about it because they really, with every album, they just seem to be going deeper and darker and darker and darker. And I personally find it fascinating from an intellectual level anyway. Well, I mean, as far as like base human, I don't really find that particularly, um, I mean, you know, the tendency to violence, you know, and, and sort of, uh, you know, war, warlike behavior is, is, you know, part of our DNA as like primates really, you know what I mean? And I think like the same way you, you have to exercise that sort of energy out of your body, you know, on a rare, I mean, most people I feel need to do that. You can tell people that don't do that. They're the ones who are like, you know, filled with anxiety all the time, you know, and they're, they're, these like worn out nervous wrecks that you see on the subway or whatever. And like, man, that guy's like, it's been a long time since he let off some steam. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, I mean, music like that is definitely important because it allows people to sort of go into those places in a safe way. That's not sociopathic or, you know, you're going to hurt somebody or whatever. But what I'm trying to say is like, yeah, it's healthy to do that. But if that's all you do, right. Then you, you need to like look on, you need to broaden your horizons and do something else because 
you know. I say this because, you know, I'm not trying to be like some preacher, but it's like, I know that because I know how it is. And I know that I've spent many years of my life just like meditating on darkness and like how our hatred and everyone, you know, everyone needs to die in this inferno of like pits of hell, you know, like that kind of thing. But that's also a choice that I'm making to feel that way, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and like really all I need to do is say, you know, change my life around or do something differently to make me feel better. But it's hard to do that. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that because it's hard. And I suppose it's also being um, introspective, you know, like people aren't willing to say, how come I can't break myself out of this, this chain of negativity? Some people don't want to, but it's really, really hard to um, take the time to kind of say, it's so easy to be defensive. Exactly. You know, and I think that a lot of, and unfortunately I'm finding that, you know, being defensive is almost acceptable in some ways, but it, it's hard work. And I guess that's the thing is being strong enough to admit that, or to say to yourself that you are planning to dedicate yourself to doing the hard work. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to, to like, stay where you're at, you know, even if you're depressed, because that becomes the norm, you know, it becomes like, you know, I'm just going to sit in my room, you know, and no one cares, no one likes me, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, unless you're asking yourself the questions, like, why do I feel this way? Why doesn't anyone like me? Why am I, like, alone all the time? Like, why can't I, like, reach out to people, you know? Like, it's a hard thing to do, and it takes, a lot of times, it takes a drastic thing to happen to someone for them to turn them around. Yeah. You know? You know, like, last summer, it was interesting when this book came out, because I got, um, you know, the the response was has been fantastic, way more um, positive than I thought. Um, but it's funny, because when the book came out, I had the worst year of my life last year. I was uh, broke. I I realized I'd gotten accepted into graduate school, but realized I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. (laughs) Um, Family issues because of the book, uh, relationship issues, you know, everything. And I was, you know, I ended up getting physically sick. I ended up having emergency stomach surgery. And in hindsight, um, it, a lot of it had to do with stress. And the worst part was, is that I thought, but I'm getting all this great, like people are saying how awesome I am and the book is great, but how come I feel even worse than I did before the book even came out? So I, and then getting sick, um, real, I, I had to realize that, you know, I had to stop crying and pull myself up by my bootstraps. And I think the best thing was, is realizing that I had, I have some awesome friends and, you know, great support system and really, you know, understanding that you can't wallow in misery. It's just, it's just not helping you. And then getting physically sick, sick was like, you know, was the final straw. You mentioned that there were some issues with your family when the book came out, like there wasn't support in general or... Well, I think talking about, because I was adopted, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the reasons why I felt alienated as a kid was because I was black growing up in a, well, my older sister is biracial, but basically growing up in a completely white environment, in a white family, and feeling just completely like an alien. 
Um, so it was hard to write about that in the book in terms of not positioning your family as being, you know, awful racist people because sure. they're not. But that I, I thought that I, you know, I think I thought that I tried to do the best job I could in terms of writing the book and being honest. But on the other hand, I don't know if I was that successful. Um, I think that, yeah, so I mean, it's still, there's still some issues, but that was really hard. And I think also when you're working on projects like this, you have to understand who are you doing it for? Are you doing it for yourself? Which we all should be doing stuff for ourselves. I came to the realization that I wasn't even really doing it for myself. I was doing it to please other people. And, and, and that went back to a bunch of issues that, um, kind of led to me being a miserable child. And that was really sad, you know, but so yeah, it was, it was not, it was, and maybe I was a little naive in the process. I think I probably was, but it was not easy at all. Recently, um, you, you did a reading or did that, did that happen or is it, did, did it happen or is it going to be happening? You're doing some kind of reading at Castillo's, uh, other place, right? Yeah. On uh, March 30th. Okay. So it's coming up. Yeah. Okay. Well, a little ways away. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, that's actually what, what, um, I got that in my, on my Facebook notification thing from, from Dave Castillo mm-hmm. or, uh, the, he was my guest on, uh, yeah. 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 And, uh, and I was like, man, this sounds really interesting. Maybe, you know, that's when the whole, this all came together as a result of that. Mm-hmm. So it's, when is that coming up again? Um, it's going to be Sunday, March the 30th. And where's it at? Um, over the eight. Okay. And yeah. It's, uh, Dave's, uh, like local old man bar. Yeah. That, you know, <laughs> like different than uh, St. Vitus uh, type of thing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it and it's really going to be like chill and a lot of discussion and probably going to drop some books off in March for people to pick up who haven't gotten the book. Cause we'd like people to read or at least have an idea of, you know, bring some questions with them in terms of, of the book and, you know, anything else they want to know about. So what's the, what's the form of this night going to be? Like, is basically you read excerpts from it and do Q and A or. I don't like to reading excerpts. Um, I tend to stutter and get really nervous. I usually like to talk about the book and chapters and how it came together and talk about, you know, the lovely women I interviewed for mm-hmm. the book and some of the men too. And then, um, I like Q and A and I like dialogue. And I think the way yeah. how Dave is setting it up is that people can kind of go off into groups and have their own discussions. And, um, and I think that it's, I'm really, I'm really psyched that he asked me to do this because the book is not, it's really for everyone. It's for anyone, um, who's interested in music, women's studies, cultural studies. You know, it's not just for black women. Definitely not. I, mean, I, I read it, you know, over the course of a couple of days and it's fun too. I mean, I know, yeah. you know, the last like, you know, 30 minutes of our conversation is this kind of intense. Like, <laughs> where, yeah, it's like, the book's not like that. That's just me being <laughs> myself, you know, but don't, don't, the book is a fun, actually it, it's a fun in, in, mo- in a lot of cases, very lighthearted in some ways. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted it to be that way. I want it to be an easy read. Yeah. You know, um, I was a little insulted when my father said, I read it in seven hours. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> you know, but I wanted to make it as approachable and open to everyone. And, you know, and so it was written in that way. And Ian really kind of hammered me 
on that because I was so insecure at the beginning where it was very academic. Mm -hmm. I had I had referenced everything. Yeah. And I, you know, I sent him in a, f a couple of chapters early on and he was like, uh-uh, this is, no. You need to find your own voice and you are a, um, what did he call me? You are an expert and you need to position yourself as knowing your shit and writing about it. And that really helped. What are some of the people who, who is, who are some of the people that you interviewed in the book? Um, as mentioned before, um, Militia Vox, who's um, from Manhattan, um, she's a lead singer of Judas Priestess and has her own band. Um, Skin from Skunk and Nancy did the foreword, which was great, so I interviewed her to put that together. Um, there was Diamond Row. Um, she's a guitarist for Tetrarch, which are currently on tour. They're kind of... Um, I always call them not mainstream metal, but if you like, you know, Beyond the Horizon or Trivium and that stuff. But uh, kind of, but anyway, band's doing really well. She's a phenomenal guitarist. Um, in terms of the punk, uh, my homegirl Tamar Kelly, um, she's also from Brooklyn. And this really cool woman who was in, um, she's in a punk band in Germany, um, Yvonne. Um, she was in a, a long-running punk band. Um, Jingle de Launch. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, some people, and then also some musicians who are not, are on the periphery of heavy music, um, who are fans and incorporated that, but are now doing different things. Um, there was some big names we couldn't get, but actually, it actually worked out to the best. I really kind of really want to talk to people who were um, really in the trenches, and also some, getting some male um voices in there too and just getting their perspectives about the scene and some industry people too Hyrax no and that's funny because I just interviewed uh, Catan like a month ago for another publication um, because I really wanted to primarily focus on women I thought he's a whole different book yeah, he's yeah, a totally. he's an amazing guy I, it was an honor to be able to speak to him and do an interview. And Eugene Robinson, too. I interviewed him like several years ago. And he's another phenomenal individualist yeah. who has his own story to tell. Yeah, Eugene was, uh, he was, a, he was one of my guests, too. Yeah. He's a trip, man. Yeah, he's, um, I'm doing some writing for him now, and he's a hard ass. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. That guy's a total pro, man. Yeah. Yep, total he, pro. He does not suffer fools. Yeah. At all, so he's gonna he's gonna put me through the ringer. I can tell you that. Well, what are you doing with Eugene? Um, he has a website. He's mm -hmm. yeah, the editor of um, Ozzy Mattis. So um, slowly, hopefully, I'll be able to write for them. You know, do the Herax. If you're listening, Eugene, I sent you, <laughs> sent you an email. <laughs> um, so yeah, I asked him. I pitched right um, doing an interview with Catan. Um, okay. For for Ozzy Mattis because I just felt from a Bay West Coast thing, I thought it would be really interesting. So yeah, but he's he's uh, he's he's amazing because um, he really as a writer I respect him so much, and as a human being, um, he's just so incredibly strong. So yeah, hopefully I'll be able to work with him in the future on a regular basis. Yeah, he's, he's solid, solid yeah. guy, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, these days, what kind of stuff are you listening to? Um, a lot of Lord Mantis right now. Yeah. Um, what else am I listening to? Coffin Worm. The new oh yeah, Coffin that band's Worm. great. 
Yeah. Um, there's also... Let me just grab my... Grab my thing. I haven't been reviewing a lot of music. Um, I've been doing some interviews, but um, just with grad school, Artificial Brain. Artificial Brain. Yeah. Um, their uh, album, I don't even know who's putting it out. Maybe I'll just check here. No, it doesn't even say. Uh, Labyrinth Constellation, really good technical death metal. Okay. If you like actually um, Dysrhythmia, yeah. that they remind me of Dysrhythmia. Okay. Um, Avishi, which is the black, um, is the Andrew Marcusi who was in Nakmistium and is in Lord Mantis. It's his solo black metal outfit from huh. Chicago. It's really good. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, really good. The new Behemoth. Oh yeah. 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 That's great. And that's interesting too, because it's the first album I've owned by Behemoth. Really? And so I had to put something on Facebook saying like, this is really good, but like, is it really good? Because I haven't listened to their back well, catalog. Their whole like they they started out like sounding more like a conventional like black metal band, and they started doing. I think they're a better death metal band. Yeah, it's a little the the production on this album is a little glossy. I think it fits them though, honestly, because there's a lot going on with their music, and there's a lot of textures and all this other stuff going on. Yeah, I re I really like it. I yeah. mean, Nergal sounds fantastic for someone who was so sick recently. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I'm uh, and in terms of last year, I think like Gorguts. Oh yeah. Um, mm -hmm. wow, and I was fortunate enough to see them in um, last year. Oh yeah, that show at Vitus. That Actually, was... I saw them before then in uh, Calgary. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. there was a metal mm -hmm. festival called Noctis, and I was, I mean, fantastic lineup. But yeah, Gorguts is great. Yeah. And so seeing Kevin, Kevin and, and Colin, Colin I was just like, you can't get any better. Yep. So one thing about Brooklyn that is great is I get to see like Kralis all the time and Dysrhythmia mm -hmm. and like Kevin do his solo stuff. I'm such a huge fan of those guys. So yeah, he's a, he's a phenomenal player, Kevin. Yeah. Phenomenal. I, I remember, um, you know, like our first, one of our early tours in, in, with Tombs was, uh, was with, with, uh, Dysrhythmia and, uh, we played, there's a, there's two, there was one show particularly where this band, The Wayward, was on as well, and that's uh, Nick Scobiche is a guy who's another insane guitar player, and I just remember feeling like, man, these guys are like way, way above, you know, my pace. You know, <laughs> like they were like on another level completely, you know, but um, yeah, The Wayward are kind of, Nick and it coincidentally Nick and, and Kevin are friends too. They grew up together down in Virginia, mm -hmm. and uh, both amazing players. And the way we're just you know, if anyone's interested in checking out like a really interesting technical band that writes great songs, like the Wayward are definitely something to, to look into. You know, they're hey. still living around forever too. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll definitely check them out. Would you be interested in doing? Uh, I'm do, I've been doing these mixtapes too, and you know, at your leisure. Yeah. If you're interested in putting together like a 60 year, you know, between 60, 70 minutes worth of material, do a little write up, you know? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I've been, um, one band I've been championing, um, Lesbian from oh, Seattle. Oh, yeah, from Seattle, yep. Oh, <laughs> I yeah, love been for a while. Yeah, and I just, and I have to admit, I was one of those people that, you know, when you hear a band named Lesbian, I was like, okay, what is this? But the music is so incredibly gorgeous. 
Yeah, I saw them a while back. Yeah, I'm. That's one band that I would probably fly to Seattle to see or the, the West Coast to see because I'm a I'm a huge fan, and um, so I'd love to put something together and incorporate that yeah. and you know yeah, pick a theme or something and then like you know some string that connects all these songs and you know write a little piece or something like that you know it doesn't have to be i selected this song because just the vibe you know yeah put it together and then because i've been doing one you know i started doing these things like a while back and then there was this big lull and now i'm like yeah i wanted to start doing more of them you know Mm -hmm. i put two together myself uh yeah, I got some some friends putting other stuff together. You know, just miscellaneous people. You know. Yeah, I know. I'd love to, and I'm honored to be asked. Yeah. My uh, my girlfriend, her, she was the last one that actually went up. She's a you know DJ. Oh, cool. She put together this uh, winter mix, you know, and that kind of stuff. Just like it could be anything, you know, any kind of feeling or emotion or concept or whatever, and just like throw it together you know? yeah right now I'm, I'm trying to because I'm reading so much and studying so much and I like to have music and I've been going through and listening to a lot of like Scott Scott Kelly solo stuff oh yeah that's great yeah, yeah and even some of uh, Steve on Till's stuff mm-hmm. and uh, Mike Scheidt from Yob has a fantastic solo album I keep hearing about that one I just haven't checked it out yet yeah it's a little it's a little weird okay. but he in terms of um, he's just such a phenomenal musician and so off on his own plane. Um, it's, it's a fantastic album. So I've been trying to figure out the right mix in terms of what to listen to while reading and concentrating at the same time. Well, since we're on the subject of music, um, what's the song you're going to take us out with, our outro song here? Um, well, this is a band um, called uh, The Objects. They're from uh, Las Vegas. Um, the lead singer is Felony Melanie, and she was actually one woman I wasn't able to interview for this book, but she's been in the punk scene for a long time, and um, I just thought it was a really good, uh, fun, catchy punk song to take take out the show. Great. Well, thanks for coming by tonight. Yeah, thank you. Time. This yeah. is an honor. I'm a huge Tombs fan. Oh, really? So, oh, oh, excellent. Thank you. Yeah, huge. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that, you know. Some people don't even know who the hell the band is that I interviewed. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I saw you play in Toronto like three or four years ago. So. Oh, in the ISIS tour? No, you were with, um, oh, man, uh, the guy at Storm of Light. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. I yeah. barely remember that. But yeah, yes, Sneaky D's. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right, in yeah. the Mexican restaurant. Yeah. Yep. That was cool. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, I like Toronto. Toronto is like, Toronto and Montreal are awesome. Like, we're going to be playing Toronto again in... Uh, Late June, early July, we have a new album coming out. Yeah, so we're be doing some, you know, some touring, obviously around that time. Yeah, are you planning? Do you have any uh, New York shows booked yet? See, that's a good question. Because <laughs> right now we're waiting to get the wait. See, now that vinyl is such a big thing, Relapse approaches these uh, scheduling release dates a little differently. Mm. Back in our last few records with them, you know, once we got the master, boom release date vinyl you know if it's a problem the record will come out like you know a little bit later you know but now since people want to buy the the vinyl lp it's not acceptable anymore for their problems with the test pressing Uh, so now we have to have like an approved test pressing once we have that then they schedule a release date so we already got a test pressing back 
audio wise, it was great. Yet, and this is letting cat out of the bag a little bit. It's a double. It's a three sided record. The fourth side is an etching. Wow. By the uh, you know, the amazing uh, Thomas Hooper, you know, uh, who's done the artwork for all our other two records on Relapse. The etching was fucked up. Oh. So, you know, they signed off on the audio portion of it, but the uh, mechanical part part of it, they need to get in the test pressing, and that hopefully will get something at the end of the week. And, uh, you know, it's only a couple of days from now. Hopefully something shows up soon. And then, then we'll know what our release date is, and then we'll start planning, touring, and all that sort of stuff. Because mm-hmm. you know? that stuff, it's like, I would hate to have, like, you know, all these shows booked and be like, you know, new album and all that stuff. And then like the record come out like a week after we finished playing all those shows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's what's been holding up the, the mix right now is the whole, you know, getting this test pressing thing figured out. But once, uh, you know, we'll be probably, you know, the main cities, you know, on this leg will be like New York, Chicago, Toronto, you know, that kind of thing. Nothing out West yet. We're hopefully, you know, looking at some, support touring options and that'll be like a u.s type tour you know mm-hmm. would you ever do mdf again i saw you at I, UIMDF I about MDF five again, years ago yeah. yeah yeah it's like it's such a hot ticket man like so many bands are looking to play mm-hmm. and it's like you know obviously this year is out you know because it's, it's happening in like two months but you know maybe next year i remember like when we played we got asked like right away it was like within the one ended and then a week later we got an offer to play and it was that was great. That was a lot of fun, man. I, I love. I went been to MDF on my own too, mm-hmm. just once. Other one other time, you know, my girlfriend and I went down to see uh, Godflesh and Napalm mm-hmm. Death. And that yeah, was like a great time. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was. I remember that year. I've been. I've been there like five years now in a row. Yeah, I'd like to go more. You know, it's it's only three hours away, man. I'm going to Baltimore this weekend to play a show, so it's like, it's so close, you know. Yeah, coming. My friend Dave runs Handshake. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I always used to go with him, and right. it was like a ten-hour drive from from Toronto, and it was it's just we were we'd be gone for five six days. Oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just definitely. crazy. Yeah. It, yeah. Now, now they're adding extra days, and there's like two state, you know, another venue, and there's like a punk rock area or like a grind stage or something, and it just uh, it's, I think you know that's cool if it, if everything runs smoothly, you know, but. I don't know. It seems like a lot to me. Yeah, last year wasn't that great. Really? Yeah. I mean, they had, I missed, like, they had their punk um, venue that was about a 10-minute walk from the main sonar, and that was a pain. That's a problem, because, like, if you wanted to see, you know, one band, and then you gotta run back, and I know, like, security there is kind of weird, you know? Yeah, oh, it was bad last year, too. Yeah. Yeah, too many people. It's just, it's growing, and it's almost expanding too much. Yeah, they need to have it like in a big field, like some like European style, you know, festival. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But so anyway, thanks a lot for coming by. Yeah, thanks uh, again. You know, once again, you know, go out, pick up, pick up uh, the book. You know, what are you doing here? Is yeah. there, uh, you know, how can people find that? It Is should it... be in every major bookseller okay. out there. You can also order directly through Bazillion Points. Okay. Um, their website, you'll probably get a little few bucks off. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if they're in, if you're in uh, Brooklyn at the end of March, you can buy it at um, Over the Eight. I'm going to cool. bring some copies there. And uh, how can people get in touch with you? Oh, I've got tons of websites. Um, check me out on writingisfighting.com. That's my blog. 
Um, there's also the book site, uh, what are you doing here, book.com. And I've also got a uh, Tumblr page now, writingisfighting.tumblr.com. But hit me up. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, once again, if um, you're in the market for a hemp MMA bag, do me a favor. www.everythingwentblackmedia.com portal for datsasara.com. If you want to buy some cashew butter, on it labs, on it.com. Thanks a lot, everybody.